I am Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. We are still in Virginia this week. Virginia, the uh, Old Dominion State. That's its state nickname. Old Dominion State. Okay. Yeah. Also, Mother of Presidents, which we talked about briefly before. It's not the Mother of Dragons. It's not Daenerys Stormborn. No. <laughs> no, just Presidents. How boring. Let's see. Other fun things about Virginia. They have a pretty scary motto. What's their motto? It's Six Semper Tyrannus, which is thus always to tyrants, Huh. which means bad things always befall tyrants, I guess. Also, Virginia is for lovers, equally as terrifying. That is as terrifying. That's what I was thinking of when you said Virginia slogan, motto, whatever you said. Hilariously instituted in 1969. Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't even <laughs> think of that. Wow. Okay. Their state flower is the American dogwood. I feel like a lot of states have dogwood. Yeah. Yeah. Although their state dog is the American foxhound, which I love because they look like beagles with really long legs. So flower is dogwood, and yeah. then dog They're... is foxhound. Yeah, foxhound. Is their movie The Fox and the Hound? Probably. Their state drink is milk. That's the... That's really boring. Yeah, that's very Virginian. I'm sorry, Virginia. Their folk dance is square dance. It also makes sense. That does make sense. <laughs> All right. Should we do si do onto what I have, or do you have more? No, go for it. So, famous people from Virginia include Patrick Henry, Ella Fitzgerald, Thomas Jefferson, Warren Beatty, Sandra Bullock, who I always think is Canadian for some reason. I think it was because of that movie, The Proposal. But That's fair. I always think she's from Texas for some reason. Oh, that makes... I could see her being from Texas. Shirley MacLaine, James Monroe, James Madison... Arthur Ashe, uh, Pharrell, George Washington, Missy Elliott, Alan Iverson, Rob Lowe, and the list goes on and on. Ooh, wow. Patsy Cline. Wow. Amy Mann. Amy Mann? Yep. So, Virginia. Virginia. I have a wonderful story. I, I, it's not wonderful. I'm sorry. I always do that. <laughs> <laughs> I have a story. It's a true crime story. About murder and mayhem. Uh, mostly murder, not not so much mayhem. It's pretty straightforward. Okay. So uh, let me dive in, I guess, unless you have something else. No, I'm good. All right, cool, cool. So our stop today is Danville, Virginia, which is located along the south central border with North Carolina. Danville is a relatively small city of about 45,000 residents. Now, because Danville is within a day's drive of two-thirds of the American population, it has a long history of manufacturing. Nice. Today, several large companies such as Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company and Nestle USA have production and distribution centers in Danville. Okay. I got a fun fact for you, Eden, since I know you love them. I do love fun facts. Sock it to me. Its nickname is the City of Churches because there's more churches per square mile than any other city in Virginia. Wow. That's a lot of churches. Get your god on. Do, do some of them do like uh, like Vegas-style weddings? Uh, maybe. Because that'd be fun. Virginia is for lovers, remember. That's true. That's true. Church-sanctioned lovers. Church-sanctioned lovers. <laughs> now, Danville is also where Teresa Lewis was born and grew up. Now, the name Teresa Lewis may sound familiar. That's because her name came up when we chatted about the last meals of death row inmates. Oh, okay. Uh, I think her last meal, if I recall, was fried chicken, a Dr. Pepper, and apple pie. Oh, okay. Now, I believe Teresa was the only woman on the list when we talked about it. 
I think so. And I think it just. I mean, Warnos might have been on there too, though. Possibly, but I know um, for Teresa Lewis, the the crime was just. I think we just mentioned it as murder. Yeah. So since the death penalty was resumed in 1976, only 16 women have been executed in the United States. And the state of Virginia had previously only executed one woman in its entire history. Wow. Yeah. It was this woman named Virginia Christensen, and uh, she was executed in 1912. So she was from Virginia. Her name was Virginia. She was executed in Virginia. Yes. Very succinct. Now, all this info, everything we talked about before, kind of made me wonder what exactly Teresa Lewis did. Yeah. That she became like the second woman executed in Virginia. Must have been pretty bad. Well, that's what I'm going to tell you about today. All right, please do. So join me as we explore the life, crimes, and death of Teresa Lewis. All right. Born Teresa Wilson, April 26, 1969, she grew up extremely poor in Danville. Both of her parents worked at the local textile factory, and the family did not have a lot of money while Teresa was growing up. The Wilson family was religious, though, and they attended one of the many churches in Danville. They really had their pick at this point. They had, yeah, a lot of choices. (laughs) Now, though she struggled socially and academically in school, Teresa was very active in church. She sang in their church choir and participated pretty heavily in the social life of her parents' church. And it was at church where Teresa would meet her first husband. After a short courtship, the 16-year-old Teresa dropped out of high school and got married. Okay. After a few years into her marriage, she gave birth to a daughter named Christy. Unfortunately, the marriage was troubled, and it ended in divorce while her daughter was still very young. Uh, Well, you know, your first one always is kind of a drag. (laughs) Especially when you're 16. (laughs) Now, Teresa, who is later described by her former mother-in-law as, quote, not quite right, was absolutely devastated that the relationship failed and that she was now a single mother. She turned to alcohol and eventually painkillers for comfort and quickly developed a substance abuse problem. Okay. Seems like, you know, we're... Going in the right direction for some murder here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, Teresa drifted from low-paying job to low-paying job while she raised her daughter in Like Danville. me? I don't know. <laughs> Have you drifted from job to job while raising your daughter by yourself? Well, I mean, by drift, I mean stay at them for years, realizing I'm not getting anywhere and move to another low-paying job. But, you know. <laughs> That's not quite drifting. <laughs> uh, eventually, in the spring of 2000, she found a job at the Dan River Textile Mill. Her supervisor there was a man named Julian Lewis. Julian was a recent widower, and he had three children of his own. He and Teresa hit it off, and soon they started dating. I won't get into the moral quandary of a supervisor dating his employee, but hey, (laughs) whatevs. By the summer of 2000, Teresa and her daughter had moved in with Julian and his three kids. Teresa and Julian got married a few months after moving in together. Okay, well, I mean, that seems like her since she dropped out of school and got married, and now she's just meeting this guy and getting married yep yep i see a pattern forming yes now in december of 2001 julian's older son jason was tragically killed in a car accident julian was the primary beneficiary of jason's life insurance payout which totaled more than two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. damn yeah pretty pretty hefty life insurance for for a younger adult now, Julian used this money to purchase five acres and a modular home for his growing family. So they all moved to this mobile home, essentially, out in Pennsylvania County. Okay. In the summer of 2002, Charles Lewis, Julian's younger son, was preparing to deploy to Iraq with his Army Reserve unit. Concerned about his family's welfare and remembering how helpful Jason's life insurance had been, 
Charles took out a $250,000 life insurance policy of his own as part of his deployment preparations. He listed Julian as the primary beneficiary and Teresa as the secondary beneficiary. Then, in the fall of 2002, a chance meeting in the checkout line at Walmart would change Teresa Lewis's life forever. She met 19-year-old Rodney Fuller and 22-year-old Matthew Schallenberger, two young men with dubious reputations. After chatting, Teresa exchanged numbers with the men. Over the next few weeks, the three formed an acquaintance. Soon, Teresa developed a sexual relationship with both men. Okay, well, I mean, still we're you know, going on the right lines, I think, for her. Yep, yep, spicy as always. Now, Teresa shared the story of her stepson's tragic passing and her other stepson's oncoming deployment to Iraq with Schallenberger, who developed a sinister idea. Recently, Schallenberger's brother had offered to sell him an inventory of illegal drugs at a discount. So Schallenberger could basically leave Virginia and move to New York to work as a drug dealer. All right. See, every time you say his last name, Schallenberger, mm-hmm. I think of Shallen monks serving burgers. Hey, man, whatever works. <laughs> That's just what pops into my head. Uh, Schallenberger has been described in a couple sources as basically a thug with ambition. And everything I read kind of leads into belief he probably was that kind of like, you know, tough guy. Oh, yeah. Criminally kind of type dude. Now... To make his dream job of becoming a drug dealer in New York come true, all he needed was an influx of cash to get started. I'm glad he's dreaming big. Mm-hmm. When Teresa told him that her husband also had a sizable life insurance policy that listed her as the primary beneficiary, Schallenberger steered their discussion towards the idea of killing Julian Lewis so that he and Teresa could collect his life insurance. All right. That's, you know, again, on brand for what we're going here. Mm-hmm. Now, this whole time, I do want to mention that Teresa was still, you know, abusing drugs and alcohol, so she may not have been in the best state of mind. Okay. Well, I don't think she was ever in the best state of mind with the decisions she's made so far in this story. That's fair. That's fair. So, Schallenberger continues his sexual relationship with Teresa to, quote, get her to fall in love with me so she would give me the life insurance money. (laughs) It was all just part of the job, just a part of what had to get done to get the money, end quote. Oh, my God. Okay. Yeah, he's kind of monstrous. He is pretty despicable. In October, Teresa gave Fuller and Schallenberger $1,200 to purchase weapons. The two young men purchased two shotguns, a pistol, and ammo for all the weapons, then formed a plan to kill Julian. They decided that they would kill him while he was driving by himself. However, this plan fell through because the logistics of pulling off a murder without any witnesses when your victim is driving in his car is a little difficult. Yeah, I would say. Yeah, so they ditched that. I've had to do it in Grand Theft Auto, so (laughs) I know. It's tough. It's tough. So they ditched that plan and went back to the drawing board. This is what they came up with. In the early morning of October 30th, Teresa woke up and crept out of the bed she shared with Julian. She unlocked the back door of the family trailer and locked the family's bull terrier dog into an empty bedroom. She then returned to bed. A couple hours later, Fuller and Schallenberger entered the house. Fuller went to Charles Lewis's bedroom, and Schallenberger went straight to Teresa and Julian's bedroom. Teresa slipped out and waited in the kitchen. Fuller shot Charles three times with the shotgun, but Charles was still alive, groaning in his bed. Frustrated. Cheery story you're telling. Extremely. Frustrated, Fuller, quote-unquote, didn't know why he didn't just die, shot him two more times. Okay. Meanwhile, Schallenberger shot Julian several times and then watched as Julian bled out in his bed. Oh, God. Teresa came back into the bedroom to get Julian's wallet. 
She returned to the kitchen and divided the $300 she found in her dying husband's wallet between Fuller and Schallenberger. The two men left, and she waited 45 minutes before calling the police to report that an intruder had shot her husband and stepson. Okay. Well, this woman is very cold-hearted. Yes. Yes, she is. I'm sorry. I can't make any of this funny. Uh, it's really not chuckle-worthy material. Yeah. It's just pretty dark and straightforward. It's very understandable why this resulted in capital punishment. Yes, I would I would say so. Like, there's no spoiler alert here. Yeah. <laughs> when the police arrived at 4.18 a.m., Julian Lewis was remarkably still alive, even though he had shotgun wounds to his chest, abdomen, pelvis, arms, and legs. He told the deputy on the scene, quote, my wife knows who done this to me. Julian was rushed to a hospital, but later died. Oh, shit. Well, if he would have survived, all this would have uh, come out a lot sooner, I guess. Mm-hmm. So the police question Teresa. She sticks to her story about a home intruder. Uh, a couple days later, she's waiting on the life insurance money to process, but she needs money as soon as possible. She should call J.G. Wentworth. 877-CASH-NOW. <laughs> we buy gold. No, just kidding. That's the other one. Uh, that's true. So she decides that she's going to take one of Julian's checks and forge it for $50,000 to try to get that money out of his bank account. When the police question her about this, she breaks down and then confesses to trying to gather money to pay off the men who killed her husband. Okay. It had been a little over a week since the murders. Yeah. So she kind of did the police's job for them. Yeah, I would say. Like I said, it's very straightforward. Yes. Now, the police, of course, immediately arrest her. They track down Fuller and Schallenberger, and they arrest them both. Uh, All three go on trial. Fuller first, then Teresa, and then finally Schallenberger. Now, Fuller and Schallenberger were sentenced to life in prison for their part in the crime, despite the fact that they were the trigger men. Okay. Now, based on the uh, sentences that her accomplice received... Teresa's defense team advises her to plead guilty to two counts of capital murder for hire, one count of conspiracy to commit capital murder, one count of robbery, and three firearm charges. That's a shit lot to be pleading guilty to. That's a ton of felonies. Uh, They told her to plead guilty because they felt that her best chance to survive and get a life sentence versus the death penalty was to plead guilty because she did cooperate with investigators. However, the prosecutor depicted Teresa as the mastermind behind the plot, and the judge, who rarely handed down capital punishment decisions, found her crimes, quote, wantonly vile, horrible, or inhumane. I would agree with him on that. Yeah. Hence, she was sentenced to death under the Virginia law that states that multiple murders committed within a three-year period are subject to the death penalty. Okay. Also a fun fact about Virginia. (laughs) That is a fun fact about Virginia. Thank you. <laughs> now, Teresa's case, because it was a capital punishment case, was automatically appealed to the Virginia State Supreme Court. They're required by law to review all cases that result in a death sentence. Okay. Just to make sure that everything was kosher, there wasn't any anything missed because it is, you know, killing somebody. Yeah. Now, the Supreme Court listened to arguments from Teresa's lawyers who said essentially that her penalty was unfair given that she had no history of violent or criminal behavior. Her accomplices, who actually did the killing, were given life in prison as opposed to the death penalty. And overall, the death penalty is a cruel and unusual punishment. So all the standards. Yeah. The greatest hits of capital punishment cases. (laughs) 
Now, their argument didn't work, and Teresa's death sentence was upheld. Now, despite this, her defense team continued to work for the next six years, trying to get her sentence commuted to life in prison. And to do this, they had some very unique approaches. Okay. First, they introduced the testimony of a board-certified forensic psychiatrist who interviewed Teresa. This psychiatrist determined that Teresa's IQ was 72, which is barely above That's, the threshold for yeah. intellectual disability. Now, since it's barely above the threshold, which is 70, yeah. 70 or below, you're considered legally mentally retarded. Mm-hmm. She was still able to understand her guilty plea. Yeah. But her defense lawyers were kind of like, yes, but also she was a woman who was addicted to pills and alcohol for years. And mm-hmm. this may have alleviated some of her culpability in the actual planning of the crime. Also, maybe not so fun fact, the words like idiot, moron and stuff like that actually come from IQ testing. Different levels of IQ, you're labeled as those. Like the ancient. It's like the old. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. gone now. But that was like the old labeling system for IQs. Interesting. Because then there's, of course, you know, normal intelligence, uh, superior intelligence, and then genius. And then there's probably like, I don't know, like super genius or something crazy if you're above 200. But no one's above 200 that I've ever heard of. <laughs> Not even Dr. Sam Beckett, who leaps through time, trying to put right what's what, what's wrong. Oh, wait, is that Quantum Leap? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I was like, that, that name always, sounds familiar. That show always cracked me up because he was like a super genius, but like just way too, like a solution for everything. I'm like, oh, yeah. okay. Is that how genius works? Cool. Good to know. I, I love that show. I haven't seen it in forever. My mom used to be a huge fan. So I'm too. Yeah. We would watch it all the time. Good times. So they had this testimony from the psychiatrist that says, yes, Teresa is borderline mentally handicapped. Then they had three other forensic psychologists testify that on top of her low IQ and Teresa's addiction to pain pills, she also has a dependent personality disorder. Okay, dependent personality disorder, yeah. Are you familiar with that? Yeah. Okay. So for those who aren't, it basically means that the person who has this disorder has a personality that is extremely dependent on others Mm -hmm. to meet their emotional and physical needs. They struggle to make their own decisions since they need constant approval of others. Uh, when you have this diagnosis, it's pretty rare for you to achieve any normal levels of independence. People with this personality disorder often display symptoms such as extreme passivity, clinginess, devastation or helplessness when relationships end, avoidance of responsibilities, severe submission, and a tendency to place the needs and opinions of others above their own. Since, see, I don't, they don't see that, that from her though at all. Well, that's the interesting thing. And I'll get into that because this was kind of the part where I went, uh-huh. So I think for me, it was that it puts the needs of needs and opinions of others above their own since they don't trust their own decision making. Yeah. And that seemed a lot to do with how her relationships in the past have worked. Yeah, I guess. Like she was 16, a guy in her church wants to marry her. She just says, okay, if you think that's a good idea. Which is just kind of weird because it's like, we're good church going folk. Mm-hmm. You're underage. Let's get married. Yeah. How old was he? I don't know. I couldn't find any okay. information about that husband. It was really odd. It was almost like a blank slate. Yeah, I had. I ran into some of that too in my research. But then the other part that kind of struck me as aligning with this was like when they did get divorced, she was totally devastated. Yeah. And like couldn't really cope with being a single mom. Okay, that's true. I mean, that would be a difficult thing to deal with regardless of, you know, any mental disease or defect. Yep. As they put it on Law and Order. And then she meets this guy, you know, Schallenberger, who's, you know, 
relatively attractive guy. I saw pictures of him. And he's sleeping with her. And she's a little bit older lady, not the most attractive, in her 30s. And he's just like, hey, you know, be a great idea. As if we murder your husband for this insurance money. Because always a great idea. Mm-hmm. Do it every time. You're going to get caught. Yep. Trust me. I mean, for me, like this personality disorder, her drug addiction, her her lower IQ scores, it's not exactly a recipe for a criminal mastermind. Yeah. And I think that's kind of something that was overlooked in the initial trial. She's certainly no no Kim. Um, I keep forgetting the last name. Rico. Rico. No Kim Rico. It's like it begins with an H, but doesn't sound like an H. Yeah, <laughs> Silent H. So uh, a private investigator that Teresa's defense team hires comes across even more evidence that point to her submission in the murder plot. She was kind of a willing participant, but not the mastermind, in other words. From prison, Schallenberger had written a letter to an ex-girlfriend or friend, depending on the source you look at, that said, quote, Teresa was in love with me. She was really very eager to please me. And she's also not very smart. That's nice of him. He later filled out an affidavit that basically said, quote, I met Teresa at a Walmart in Danville, Virginia. From the moment I met her, I knew she was someone who could be easily manipulated. Killing Julian and Charles Lewis was entirely my idea. I needed the money and Teresa was an easy target, end quote. Oh, shit. Okay. Now, the trouble is he ended up partially destroying this affidavit. Oh. And then in 2006, he killed himself in prison. Yeah. Okay. So... No real help for her in terms of commuting her sentence. And when did all this take place? Uh, The murders happened in 2002. Okay. And her defense team took the next like six years trying to get her sentence commuted. And how old was she when she was committing these murders? Um, Let's see. 2002, like 33. Oh, God. Okay. Yeah. She's pretty young. So next, the investigator tries to get an affidavit from her other accomplice, Rodney Fuller. Uh, Fuller's much more cooperative. He states that, quote, Matthew came up with a plan to kill Teresa's husband. Everyone knew that Teresa wasn't very smart. Matthew was the dominant one in that relationship for sure. Okay. In the meantime, Teresa's waiting on death row. She's a model prisoner. She kicks her pill habit. And she devotes herself to Christian missionary work within the prison. So she starts counseling others on death row and devoting her limited free time to counseling and ministry. Well, that's kind of cool, I guess. Yeah, I thought so. As her execution date, September 23rd, 2010, moved closer, her case generated over 7,300 pleas from clemency, all sent to Virginia Governor Bob McDonnell. Protests formed outside the prison where Teresa was held, and her case triggered a national debate over the application of capital punishment and how it unfairly applies to women in the United States and sometimes around the world. Okay. Now, one vocal supporter of commuting her sentence to life imprisonment was the novelist John Grisham. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Now, Grisham, who has written many novels we all know and love, mm-hmm. was a lawyer and he's also a legal activist. He wrote an op-ed column that appeared in the Washington Post. In this column, he argued that the evidence indicates that Schallenberger, who had an IQ of 113, was the actual mastermind. So he actually was just of average, around average intelligence too. Mm-hmm. But compared to Teresa, but he was like he was a like brilliant compared to her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Grisham said that quote the imposition of a death sentence has little to do with fairness end quote and too often it's applied inconsistently by judges and prosecutors. Okay. So 
even with all of this, you know, star power, if you will, behind her, her attorneys are like, you know what, we have to try one last thing. So they file a motion with the U.S. Supreme Court to review the lower court's ruling based on this new evidence they've discovered since the previous review by the Virginia Supreme Court. However, it was denied on September 21st, 2010, clearing the way for Teresa's execution. Okay. On September 23rd, 2010, Teresa Lewis was executed by lethal injection. She was just 41 years old. Wow. Yeah. Her execution marks the 12th execution of a woman in the United States since 1976. Wow. I had no idea that such few women were. Mm -hmm. Total of 16, but she was the 12th. Wow. So, Eden, what do you think? Do you think the death penalty was applied correctly? I don't know. I don't really think so because, I don't know, she, oh, this is difficult. Isn't it? Yeah. It's it's interesting because this is like a a lot of the um, op-eds that I came across about this, like the Guardian newspaper went to town on this case. Like There was like 15 different articles about it. And a lot of them were of the sense of like, you know, when we kind of apply the death penalty to things, it should be like the most severe crimes and it should be, you know, absolute last resort to make someone pay. Yeah. Um, And it seems like everyone very much was kind of horrified uh, that, you know, she could perhaps be intellectually disabled, but everyone's kind of just like crying out for her blood. It's, I mean, if she really was, you know, that like, if she had that low of an IQ and she really had dependent personality disorder and everything else. And also she's very poor. Yeah. Then it just seems like, like, I mean, she still knew what she was doing, I guess, but she did. And she admitted to it. It just seems like she wouldn't understand the full weight of her consequences. Yeah. So I don't know. I just, I think it's kind of like a classic example of like how the criminal justice system doesn't always work for you. If yeah. You're, if you're any way, you know, handicapped or, poor mm-hmm. or an addict or a minority mm-hmm. even though women are not a minority but you know what i mean a minority <laughs> well women are still considered minorities even yeah. though they're a majority because there's more women than men but yeah i don't i don't know i know i just thought it was very uh tragic and interesting all at the same time because you figure yeah like when i first started reading about it, i'm like oh she must do something terrible right and it's like oh murder for hire that is terrible but like that's I'm like there has yeah. to be something else in her background. She must you know like you read about like killers and you're like oh they started you know yeah I expected her to be like the super cunning you know yeah. Yeah. vicious murderer when instead it was just oh okay well you mentioned like Eileen uh, Warnos and like she was definitely much more of a violent criminal yeah and I think it's interesting that like that was the woman who was previously executed in the United States before yeah. Teresa Lewis and I'm like wow it's I don't want to say it's like night and day, but it's definitely two very different ends of the oh, yeah, murder absolutely. spectrum. But yeah, so that's my story for Virginia. All right. Thanks for bringing the, the room down. You betcha. Capital punishment. <laughs> <laughs> so my sources for this week were, of course, Wikipedia, our star player, Style Weekly, uh, which had a great article entitled Blood Sisters, which is about Teresa Lewis and also Virginia Christian and comparing their two executions in Virginia. Style Weekly. Isn't that like a... Like a, would that be like a fashion magazine? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, so I was right, guessing that it was a fashion magazine. Sometimes there's serious journalism. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> what? Okay. Uh, Medium.com, ABC.com, HuffPost.com, a couple of articles from the Guardian, of course, since they had so many. Uh, an article from the New York Times and John Grisham's op-ed in the Washington Post. Nice. 
All right. I guess we'll take a little break then. And when we come back, I will tell you my paranormal story for the week. Hopefully it's a little bit more lighthearted. Um, well, you'd think that, wouldn't you? <laughs> we'll be back, guys. We are back. And I have a delightful story. Oh, yeah? Yes. I'm excited. I am, too. I'm excited to tell you. I always like it when you do paranormal stories. I always like it when you do paranormal stories. Thanks. I like doing paranormal stories better, truth be told. Yeah. True crime is always a little bit too dark for me. I love doing the true crime ones because they're easier for me to write a lot of times. See, I feel that way about paranormal stories. Really? Huh. Mm. Must be our co-hosts. Yeah, I guess. This week... We are headed to a town everyone knows, and I'm sure a lot of people have vacationed at, Virginia Beach. Ooh, yeah. From what I remember of Virginia Beach, it's a nice coastal town with a rather large boardwalk, but there are certain parts that you should stay away from as well. According to the FBI, it's certainly not one of the safest cities to be in, mostly due to the fact that it sees a lot of tourism. People walk around with a good deal of money on them. Someone is bound to want to take advantage of that because we can't have nice things and people suck. Anyway, let me give you a little history and some fun facts. It was incorporated as a town in 1906 and then as a city in 1952. It's actually its own entity pretty much and isn't in any county. So I think it was at one part Princess Anne County, but not anymore. Okay. Now it's just all alone. So it's like Virginia Beach County now. Yeah, it's it's not even a county. It's just an independent city. Oh, it's just Virginia Beach. Yep. Cool. It's huge, and it stretches for most of Virginia's coastline, and is actually in the Guinness Book of World Records as having the longest pleasure beach in the world. I do not like that word, pleasure beach. Like pleasure beach. Yeah, it sounds like you're going there for for something immoral and wrong and naughty. <laughs> <laughs> Sand gets in the darndest places. Yeah, yeah, it might look fun on like TV and movies, and people are doing it on the beach. I would not want to try that in real life. It does not sound fun. Sand in places, no. Mm. So, this place is nearly 500 square miles, and that's a pretty even distribution between land and water as well. So Cool. There's also around 450,000 people living here, which is probably why traffic is so bad. I've mentioned it before, Virginia Beach Boulevard still haunts my dreams. This place is also home to someone I think is just one of the worst people in the world, Pat Robertson of the 700 Club. Wow. If you, Beach bum, huh? Yeah, I guess. If you don't know who he is, you can look him up and listen to the hate speech he preaches under the guise of Christianity. It's pretty bad. Anyway, Virginia Beach and surrounding area is where the first English colonists were, so it is just steeped in history, which I'll get into somewhat. This is the story of the Fairy Plantation House. Ooh. The Fairy Plantation is named so because of the ferry boat that ran through the Lynn Haven Waterway. This ferry had 11 stops in total as far as what is known today, since it was back in 1642, so I'm sure records weren't the greatest. The interesting thing about this is that the ferry was actually summoned by the most annoying way possible, a signal cannon. (laughs) They would literally shoot off a cannon and be like, hey, pick these people up. Like, yo, yo, yo. Yeah. (laughs) It must have been really annoying for anyone that lived nearby. Only three of these cannons can still be found today. Maybe someone got fed up with the noise and destroyed them. I don't know. Fun fact. A man named Adam Thorogood II commissioned another man by the name of Seville Gaskin 
to run this ferry for 800 pounds of tobacco. That's it. I guess that means that he got paid in tobacco or something is what it sounded like. I tried to find this information on other sites, but I only found it on the plantation's website. So who knows? I just thought it was pretty funny. I mean, you make it, I assume the plantation had was growing tobacco since that's the big cash crop. Yeah, probably. Now, Gaskin owned some of this land. Thoroughgood owned most of the land until it was owned by the Walk family due to intermarrying along with a tavern that was owned and operated by Gaskin. Okay, so Gaskin ran the ferry and the tavern. The tavern, hmm The land owned by Gaskin, however, is now called Witch Duck Point. Give me a minute and you'll understand the name. There's also a Witch Duck Road and a Witch Duck Bay. I've heard of Witch Duck Tavern, too. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Oh, cool. There were a series of murders there coming to. There was a murder robbery. Oh, shit. Okay. Well, we might have to delve into that (laughs) at some point. Uh, There are quite a few buildings that I'm going to talk about here as this plantation is pretty sizable. One of which is a place I'm sure you'll find interesting, Nicole. Okay. It was called the Second Princess Anne Courthouse. And don't ask me what happened to the first one. You'll find it interesting because this was where the trial of Virginia's only convicted witch was held in 1706. Huh. I'm thinking you'll find it interesting because you did Muldire. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. the trial began on July 10th of that same year. And here's where I found some either conflicting or just poorly written information, or maybe I'm just dumb. I don't know. Anyway, it was also said that the trial was held in a church which was called the Brick Church, I would assume, because it was made of brick. This place was built in a very bad year for supposed witches, the very same year that all that lovely shit went down in Salem, 1692. Woo! Foreshadowing much? (laughs) My conclusion that I came to as far as the two separate places are concerned is that part of her trial was probably held in the courthouse and the other was held in the church. This building, I'm pretty sure, no longer exists, as I found it was replaced in 1736 with the old Donation Episcopal Church, and that's where the grave of Grace Sherwood, the supposed witch, can be found. She's also known as the Witch of Pungo, since that's where she came from. That's where she was, that's Mm, where the area was. Not only was she Virginia's only convicted witch, but hers was also the only trial by ducking, in the Lynn Haven River, or at least that's what her gravestone says. Basically, Grace was this nice lady who used herbal remedies to heal the sick. Of course, in a time of witch hysteria, this was seen as the work of the devil himself because Puritans were, well, puritanical, and because of this, people thought she was a witch. She was initially jailed before trial in a courthouse that no longer exists now, Besides healing people with herbs, other reasons cited for her being a witch include her supposedly using her witchcraft to find lost items and treasure. So she was helpful. Oh, yes. She's a witch. She's a witch. If you're a helpful woman, of course you're a witch. She was also a midwife, and you know how things were for you know anyone doing midwifery. Mm. The midwives were always seen as witches for some reason. Again, I'll say fucking Puritans, which is something I said a lot while writing these notes. She was also accused of using magic to curse crops and cause the deaths of livestock, as well as turning herself into a cat by her neighbor, who probably just wanted her land because, again, that's how witch trials worked back then. Fair enough. Thanks, English law. 
She was actually accused several times from what I found, and her trial was one of my favorite things ever to come out of witch hysteria. Why? I think we may have talked about it with Mal Dyer, but I don't remember. But you guys may know of it from Monty Python, if nothing else. Trial by ducking. Oh. That's right. I said ducking, and it wasn't autocorrect trying to duck me up. (laughs) Basically, she was tied and put into the water. If she sank and died, she was not a witch. However, if she floated, she was in fact a witch. Guess what happened? She floated. I don't remember where I found it, but I think they actually did this to her twice, if I'm not mistaken, and she floated both times. She was jailed for about eight years and was also whipped 39 times. She got her house and land back after she was released, which was good at least, and she lived until about 80. So she was convicted of being a witch. Yes. They whipped her. Mm -hmm. And locked her up for eight years. And then they released her. And then they were just like, you can go. You're probably not a witch anymore. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know why she's released, but she's released, and she lived in her house until she was 80 and died. As I had said about this happening to her multiple times, it was always by neighbors who would accuse her. And she was always trying to sue them for slander, but she kept losing her case. Hmm. Her headstone is actually in an herb garden outside the church, too, so I guess that's in honor of her memory. Interesting. She was officially pardoned for the crime of witchcraft in 2006 or so, roughly 300 years after. I mean, better late than never, I suppose. I I guess. Now, let's get back to these owners for a minute. The Walk family. And some more history of this place. The land was considered prime real estate for the fact that it had been cleared by the Native American tribes that were run out of it back in the 1500s. The clearing, I mean, not the running out. How convenient. Yes. Hey, you live here? Well, we all live here. No. No, just us. I like this land now. (laughs) It's mine. I like your land. Can I have it? Too bad. Yeah. So the tribe responsible for this were either the Powhatan tribe of Pocahontas fame or the tribe who they took the land from, the Chesapeans. Not sure which, but probably the Chesapeans. Okay. So it wasn't even the white settlers. It was... First, the Powhatans, and then the white settlers. Anyway, after the second Princess Anne Courthouse came the third Princess Anne Courthouse, which was built in 1735, but was torn down and replaced by the Walk family's house, which was suitably named the Walk Mansion or Walk Manor House. Okay. The building is no longer standing either, however, because it burnt down in a fire in 1828. Could it be the ghost of Grace Sherwood, the ghost of the tribes whose lands was stolen? Or maybe, just maybe, it was just that it burnt down. (laughs) Don't go getting any ideas, people. Simmer down. The house that stands there now, the Fairy Plantation House, was built in 1830, supposedly by the Walks, who are at this point the Macintoshes, but, you know, that's because of marriage. Actually, it was built by slaves, because, you know, it's a plantation. Fair. So... The house was constructed in the federal style and doesn't look a lot like the plantation homes we usually think of, so it's not like Gone with the Wind. Okay. They used the bricks that remained after the fire of the Walk Manor, and according to the plantation's website, this is from the middle section of the house, which was also part of the third 
princess and courthouse. Apparently, when the Walks built their house, they used the courthouse as their kitchen. Interesting. They actually had it built for their 17-year-old son, whose name was Charles Fleming McIntosh. During the time of secession in the Civil War, Charles was commissioned by the Confederate Navy and was captain aboard the CSS Louisiana. Okay. Fun fact time again. Nice. I was never sure what the hell SS meant on a ship, so I looked it up for y'all. You can thank me by telling all your friends about this podcast because we need more listeners. (laughs) Anyway, SS can mean a few things, as it turns out. Uh, It can stand for single screw, which refers to the propulsion method. Don't ask me to explain that one because I didn't care enough, honestly. So it can also stand for steamship, which is self-explanatory. Lastly, it can also just be used because it's understood throughout the world as being a ship thing, even where English isn't spoken. So that's it. So when you say SS minnow, Mm -hmm. it could just be a single screw minnow. It could be a single screw, it could be a steamship, or it could just be because it's a ship, and they just want people to know it's a ship. Interesting. As if your eyes couldn't tell you that. <laughs> well, back to the story. In 1850, a new timber section of the house was added, and in 1890, the house was sold to Charles Barnett. That name gives me a little trouble because of speaking Swedish. Barn is a word for child in Swedish. Mm-hmm. But depending on if it's plural or how it's used in the sentence, it can be barnen or barnet. And oddly enough, probably due to Saxon and Viking invasions uh, in Scotland, they say bairn hmm. for child. In 1986, the last owner of the house passed away and the house was left abandoned until 1994 when some developers bought it. I also found something contradicting this on Wikipedia saying it was owned by a woman named Virginia Higgins and that she moved out in 1986. So who knows? Um, She gave the deed apparently to the city, if that's the case. And while most other sources didn't say who the owner was who died, one source told me it was a woman named Mrs. Howren. Okay, so a lot of conflicting... Yeah, so I really don't know. You'd have to ask the people at the museum that it is now. According to a review on TripAdvisor that sounded like it was word for word from the Wikipedia page mostly (laughs) when it came to the hauntings, uh, it mentioned that the place was going to be demolished in 1990 but was saved. I didn't see that information anywhere else, though, including the website for the house. Interesting. So I don't know where they got it from. Maybe like it was one of those things if they actually did go, it's like a tour guide. Maybe. I would call them, but they're probably not working right now. So. Renovations began, and probably the hauntings, in 1996 when the city got a hold of it and leased it to Friends of the Fairy Plantation House. By 2004, it was on the Virginia Landmarks Register, and by the next year, it was on the Register of Historic Places. I don't know when, but also on the property there was or is a post office, and there was also once a school. Today, it's used as a museum as well as office space. Okay. I don't know that I'd want that haunted office space, but. (laughs) The other modern use for this place is for the summer history camp, which teaches kids about life in the 17 and 1800s. Kind of like Williamsburg, but on a plantation. Yeah, it's pretty cool. You can take tours here that cater to both the historical side of things as well as the paranormal. 
So no matter what you're into, you can find it here. Sweet. There's also something fun called the Stroll of Lost Souls, which apparently is one tour that you can take. I'm not sure if it's just the plantation or other haunted spots in Virginia Beach as well. I know that when we were there, we did take a haunted tour, and I don't remember what it was, but... Depending on how scary these ghosts are, I mean, if they're like appropriate level scary, I might be into going on a walk of Lost Souls. I'm going to say I don't think they're that bad, but I don't remember, even though I only finished this last night, but... (laughs) I don't remember. I blocked it all from my head. It's new to me and Eden both. <laughs> so they also do reenactments of Grace Sherwood's trial here as well. So it's kind of like Salem. Oh, yeah. gotcha, gotcha. You can also rent the house out for a night for yourself and up to 12 people for a total of $250. That's so cheap. So I'm talking to you, Eddie. Let's do this. There are said to be 11 ghosts that haunt the halls of the Fairy Plantation House, and they are most active in the southeast wing, which is the oldest part of the house, so that's kind of a no-brainer there. Mm -hmm. Before I tell you about the 11 ghosts, I'll first talk about some other weird phenomena said to have happened in this house. Oh, and I'd like to add that arrowheads are commonly found under the ground, so I'm wondering if maybe this place was built over some graves as well, possibly? Could be, or maybe a battleground. Yeah, I didn't find anything saying it was, but I didn't find anything saying it wasn't either, so, (laughs) hey. For starters, even when vacant, people have seen lights turn on and off of their own accord. This still happens today, and the staff at the place go around and make sure the lights are off every night, yet they always seem to come in to lights on on the third floor. Weird. Yeah. So it's kind of like, um, well, I'll get into Robert the doll because I'm probably going to cover him for Florida, mm-hmm. but they have the same problem there. Hmm. Strange balls of light have been witnessed floating around the roof of the house. A ball was also seen inside the house by a group of ghost hunters, too. Something about that third floor, huh? Yeah, it's weird. The sound of children giggling can be heard as well coming from the dining area. Mm. Other things like whispering, crashes, humming, and whistling have also been heard. I found a group called Port City Paranormal who investigated this place, and they got some good EVPs. They asked the one ghost to tell them its name, and it just simply responded with, No. No. Yeah. It's the bitch ghost. There was also a time when one of them was asking another member of the team for batteries and he didn't have them, but a ghost was recorded saying, Johnny got it. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I didn't find those particular EVPs on their website. They did have a bunch of EVPs on there, but most of it was what you'd imagine. It just sounded like whispering that you can't make out or like someone had the TV on in the background. Hmm. So it was nothing spectacular from what they actually put on their website. Gotcha. People have also reported the sounds of dragging chains. Oh, that's dark. Yeah, they think it's possibly from when it was a courthouse. Mm. But yeah, it doesn't sound good. I think of that or maybe if they chained up their slaves. Yeah. Which would just be freaking horrible. I hope they were a little better than that. But like I said, it's a plantation. So there's the ghost of a slave named Henry. And he is said to be seen every Saturday night or nearly every Saturday night coming up from the basement and kneeling in front of a wall before getting back up moments later and leaving the room the way he came in. That seems odd. Yeah. When they uh, restored the house, 
they ended up finding a fireplace behind that wall. Huh. So they feel like he was probably like stoking the fire, putting more wood on, something like that. Mm. Through EVP, people have found out that he lived in the house even after he was emancipated because he, quote, had nothing better to do. I mean, that sounds like the unfortunate situation yeah. a lot of people were in during the reconstruction. Exactly. Uh, he also told them he liked to fish. Another site I looked at said he wanted revenge for something, but didn't say what, and I didn't find it on any other source, so I don't know. Hmm. One of the ghosts might be that of General Thomas H. Williamson, who was the son of Thomas and Ann Walk Williamson. Apparently, he was seen by the granddaughter of one of the docents there. He was wearing a dirty shirt and painting something on the second floor. Later, they found a painting of the house done by him, so that's why they assumed it was his ghost. Huh. Yeah. So who knows? There's a lady in white here who is probably a residual haunting because whenever people see her, it's always the same thing. They see her falling down the stairs and breaking her neck. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's cheery, right? That's like, um, I feel like I've seen that movie. Uh, There's actually, I forget which Fatal Frame it is. Do you know the Fatal Frame game series? Mm, No. Basically, they all take place in Japan, and it's based on some sort of urban legend. And you don't have any weapons. You can't really defend yourself from these ghosts. The only thing you can do is take their pictures, and that will, um, like, it's like this exercising film Okay. Uh, so basically, that's how you fight the ghost. You take their pictures and you get more points and it takes away more of their health if they get right up in your face before you take the picture and are uh. right about to attack you. So the game pays you for freaking you out. Nope. So it's kind of fun. But there is this one ghost in one of the games that constantly falls down the stairs and breaks her neck. Um, yeah. So I don't need to play that game. But thanks for telling maybe me about they, it. <laughs> maybe they read about this and put that into the game. Who knows? Inspiration, right? Yeah. There were two children seen on the stairs by another docent. Maybe they pushed the woman. Who knows? Uh, Damn kids. Yeah, right. Nothing much was said about them except that they were a boy and a girl, and they just kind of popped up, scared the woman, and vanished. (laughs) The next one is in a room called the conference room, which is in the West Wing edition of the home. It's another child ghost whose name is Eric. He apparently died from falling out the window in that room. Hmm. Lots of falls happen here, apparently. The voices of children have also been recorded in this room, and toys are said to move around on their own there. Okay. Eric is very chatty and playful from what I've heard, and interacts with the ghost hunters who come in quite a bit. Hmm. Eric may have been the boy the docent saw, but I'm not sure. Also, they think the little girl might have been the daughter of Charles and Isabella McIntosh. She died on the property at around the age of five. I didn't find why she died, but I do know her name is Bessie, and her hair is in ringlets, and she wears Mary Janes because she's a little girl ghost, and that's what you think when you see a little girl ghost from that era. (laughs) Possibly the same little girl or maybe another who was described pretty much in the same way this girl had been described was except she was like six or eight okay instead a little bit older yeah um was seen by a clergyman who was attending the 297th anniversary of grace's trial Hmm. she just looked at him with quote sad eyes and disappeared then cindy lopper started singing you with the sad (laughs) eyes 
the ghost of a pregnant woman who might be Isabella was seen in the window looking sad. Like her picture was taken and I saw the picture. It's really creepy. Like she looks like full on like a person. Oh, so maybe it's fake. Who knows? Um, Cause when it's too real, you wonder if it's really yeah. fake. The reason they think that it's her is because Charles died in the war while she was still pregnant. The civil war. Yeah. Gotcha. There's apparently a lot of sad women in this house. The ghost of Sally Walk, who was a cousin of the Macintoshes, is also said to be seen crying for her fiancé who died in the war. Hmm. She's been seen near one of the fireplaces. A paranormal team talked to her and asked her why she was standing next to the fireplace, and she responded with, I'm so chilled. Interesting. That must suck if you're a ghost and you can still feel cold. And you're always cold forever. Yes. That would really suck. It's just me in the wintertime. See, my mind went to that episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? That was um, Melissa Joan Hart was on that one. And there was this ghost that she kept seeing that kept going, I'm cold. Yeah. No, pass. So the ghost of people who died in a shipwreck in 1810 are said to haunt this place too. So it's starting to seem like there's a lot more than 11 ghosts in this place. Yeah, it does kind of seem like a cavalcade of spirits. Yes. Grace Sherwood has been heard as well in this house. I'm not sure if she's been seen, but she's definitely been heard yelling at her dog, whose name is Tobias, who also (laughs) haunts the house. Yeah. (laughs) Imagine just like, Tobias, get back here. Apparently, there's even more children because there's also one named Mary who is about three years old. Her presence was felt by a psychic who said that he felt the name Mary. Okay. So we don't know who she is. There's a little blonde girl who the same docent with the grandchild saw and thought it was her own grandchild until she followed her into the room that's called the best parlor. I guess there are a lot of parlors here, but that one's the best. Um, And the kid just disappeared. Whoops. Yeah. Worst babysitter ever. There was also an event with that docent where child ghosts saved her from falling down the stairs, but I didn't find anything major about it other than that they left a handprint on her sweater. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Something about like her carrying costumes upstairs and she had her hands full and slipped and fell and they grabbed her and saved her. Hmm. I don't know. Those stairs are just, they sound, they sound like the uh, non-regulation yeah terror stairs exactly like, like, yes. like you have in your house yes exactly like yeah. mine <laughs> finally there's also a ghost cat that's said to be seen roaming the area i would assume that it's trying to tell people its food dish is empty even though it's still half full and he was also probably fed just an hour ago that morning <laughs> so that's the story of the fairy plantation house what'd you think i would go there i would go there too we should do the overnight yeah i would do an overnight there um it's, I saw some photos online. It looks very pretty. It is. It's very nice. Um, yeah, and it's near the beach, right? Yes, we can so, always go for a beach day, too. It's a win-win for me. Exactly, yeah. I mean, 250 is not that much to rent out a house for a night, Mm-mm. so that's pretty Mm-mm. cool. There's also a possibility that, like, if they're available, that you can get a paranormal team to work with you, mm. which I think is cool, but I'd rather do it on my own. That's fair. You know? That's fair. My sources for this week were Wikipedia fairyplantationva.net, pilotonline.com, transcendparanormal.com, tripadvisor.com, colonialghost.com, 
theghostguild.weebly.com, trytoscare.me, and portalcityparanormal.com. So that brings us to the end of our Virginia part two, huh? That it does. Where are we going next? I don't even know. I gotta um, check my map. North Carolina. North Carolina. That makes sense. Yeah, I think that's where we're going. I'm excited for North Carolina. I feel like there's going to be some good stories there. Yeah, I think there will be too. I think the South is going to have a lot of really cool ghost stories. Yes, yes. I think it actually already might have one. And lots of gigantic bugs, if I remember correctly. Ugh. Roaches in the South. Mm-mm. Huge. Mm-mm. In Florida, we call them palmetto bugs. Yeah, they fly, don't they? Mm-hmm. Okay, pass on that. Yeah, they're not fun. Mm-mm. Pass. Well, Boasters, we love you. We'd yeah. love to hear from you. We would love to hear from you. You can always reach out to us via email at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. You can go to our website at roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. We're on the social medias, Facebook, Instagram, at Roadside Horror Show, or on Twitter at Roadside Horror. We'd also like to thank Yox Rocks Designs for our amazing logo and E. Massey for our great intro and outro music. So until next time, roasters, creep, creep on, on, creeping on. on.